you can sing hymns with the Queen if you time your visit right to Balmoral in Scotland. If you ever wanted to try and see the royals and you happen to be up there during the summer, go to the church. Coming up, here where you can do some royal sightseeing. Siberia is often seen as a place of exile. Sophie Roberts found pianos that were shipped there over the past few centuries to help the European Russians feel a little more at home. And they still make music today. The piano, that instrument, provided both a symbolic and a very real connection with what they'd left behind. Coming up, we'll hear what she found looking for the lost pianos of Siberia. In Italy, you'll find the action and your friends are often in the town square. It's like the town is a big palace and there the piazza is the living room. Frances Mays takes us to the heart of the community in the piazzas of Italy. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. There's something special, both in the small towns and in city neighborhoods, that helps to provide a real sense of community in Italy. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, Francis Mays tells us how the local piazza is an important part of La Dolce Vita. And Sophie Roberts tells us about her adventure to find a decent piano for a musical prodigy in Mongolia by searching for the lost pianos of Siberia. We'll hear about that in just a bit. Kings and queens with real power are a relic of the past in Europe. Most of them today play ceremonial figurehead roles limited by their constitutions. In Britain, polls tell us most people are more or less supportive of the role the Windsors play as their royal family. Their lives are a regular beat for the British press, and there are many elegant stops in British tourism connected to the Queen and her family. Paul Guest was an electrician on Her Majesty's Royal Yacht Britannia when he was in the Royal Navy. Today, he works as a tour guide based in Belfast. He's joined by Elizabeth Boardman, a tour guide from Bath, not far from London. They're here to help us Americans better understand the royals in Britain. By the way, our interview was recorded just prior to the global pandemic shutdowns. Liz, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Rick. Because it is an interesting thing for us. There's still kings and queens and uh, in Belgium and in the Netherlands and in mm. Spain and all over Scandinavia. But they really have little power. But what's the purpose? Why do you Brits willingly pay tax money to have kings and queens and princes prancing around your country? I know. That's a question that we always get asked as guides when we're doing our tours. Mm -hmm. And yet one of the questions I always ask the tour members is, put your hands up if you came on this tour just because we have a royal family. And no one ever does. We've got so much more to offer, but the royal family are a big attraction for us as well. Because immediately, I'm sure if we just said Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince Harry, everyone has a visual of who they are because of the world's media. Mm -hmm. But for us as British citizens, it's a lot more than that. We're very personal about them. If we were to believe the um, recent opinion polls, approximately 88% of the British public are in favour of the mm -hmm. royal family, which is quite surprising considering everyone's still coming out of a, a depression and financial yeah. difficulties are hard. Mm -hmm. But we like having the royals. Well, there's something actually practical about it and, and heavy responsibility to be a royal because you do all the ceremonial stuff. I mean, it's almost a full-time job to be cutting huge, ribbons and huge, going to huge hospitals. And in the United States, we don't have anybody to do the, the ceremonial stuff except our politicians. And in Britain, you can kind of divide it. Royals do the ceremonial stuff and politicians do the legislating. Yeah, it's shared out between all the royals. It's a duty. They have a, a schedule which they follow. I just want to reiterate what Liz was saying and what, what I think 
is uh, it's a love for the royal family. I think mm-hmm. we actually do love having a royal family yeah. uh, on top of the uh, huge amount of interest abroad and, and right. what that brings in tourism and, and income for the country. Definitely. It's your heritage. It's sort of a celebration of what England is. It is. Yeah, yeah it I is. I get goosebumps when I see <laughs> royals. And as a tourist, it's, it's very interesting. So they are limited by the Constitution. So do they have any political power at all? If a, if a royal had a strong feeling about something, what would they do? There has been royals that have made their feelings known, especially Prince Charles, uh, mm. on certain subjects. But as far as I'm aware, they are told to sort of rein it in a little bit and keep their opinions to themselves. So yeah. let's let's have a quick review of the royal family uh, these days. Of course, we've got Queen Elizabeth. She's getting old, but she, she seems is. to be um, still yeah. pedal to the metal. Her, her husband's husband. name is? The Duke of Edinburgh, also yeah, known as Prince, Prince Philip. Philip. Prince Philip and yeah. their children? So the eldest is Prince Charles, who yeah. will be our next monarch. Yeah. Followed by his sister, Princess Anne. Uh-huh. Followed by his brother, Prince Andrew. Uh-huh. And there's also a, a further brother, who is Prince Edward. So, and all of these people are healthy and still in public. Uh, very view. much, yeah. very much. And yeah. then, and then the next generation, there's probably a lot of nieces and nephews. There is many nieces and ne- and as we're speaking at the moment, we've got three kings and one queen in waiting to go on the throne. What does that mean? Well, basically what it means, the next person in line for the throne when the queen dies will be Prince Charles. Right. That will then be followed by Prince William, his eldest son. Right, that makes sense. And then Prince William's eldest son, Prince George. Okay. Then we have his uh, Prince William's daughter, Princess Charlotte. So I said that makes sense when you said the eldest son, but uh, <laughs> oh, I, I that's don't, all changed I don't now. Know. That's yeah. all changed so, now. So, but if if Charles had an older daughter, would she be next in line, or do, is it still the old-fashioned? It's the boys still go before it the girls? would still be William, but so when William and Kate, um, Kate Middleton, who uh-huh. is wi- William's wife, when they were expecting Prince George, their eldest son, the law was changed. It so was, it was so the firstborn. So they couldn't grandfather it in. No. But before that <laughs> child was born, yeah. grandfathered it, in, so to speak. Exactly. Um, yeah. the, before the child was born, they could change the law. So they, now that's historic. It's historic. So a daughter well. gets the same rights in the lineage there yes. as a son. As it turned out, they had Prince George. But if Prince George had been a girl, it would have been a queen. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking the royals, and we're joined by two English citizens, both who seem to be fans of the royals. You don't strike me as particularly conservative people, and it's just 80% of the Brits are like celebrate to have a royal family. <laughs> we got Liz Boardman and Paul Guest. Hey, you know, when we travel to England, a big part of our visit is sightseeing. And, mm. you know, you go to see the changing of the guard at the Buckingham Palace. So, Liz, how do we know when there's a changing of the guard? Because it's not every day, is it? It's not every day. Just look online. We have what's called royal.uk. And because it's a, I, I remember in the old days, it was like every other day as long as it's not raining or something. Uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> the weather can make an, um, can influence for us. Right. And also if we're having any state visits. Yeah. So check on that. And then, definitely and then your guidebooks will tell you where to stand and when to beware. But it's a, oh, it's a procession that goes uh, several hundred yards. And it's a military parade. And it's... Uh, Exactly that. If you wanted to see the guards themselves, and as you said, they're normally accompanied with a band. We we have them on horses as well. It's a it's 
one of the typical spectacles of coming to London. So if you're in London for a few days, there's a very good chance in the morning you'll see the mounted parade going up to the palace. The actual changing of the guard, you're going to be pushed against that iron railing, and it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to see it, actually. It is. It is Unless very you stand on the top to of the Victoria it. Monument, right? That's a very good tip, actually. Yeah. yeah, just get that elevated view. But the only thing I would say, normally the changing of the guard is around about 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. You would need to be in place for yeah. an hour beforehand. I love stepping out of my bed and breakfast and hailing a taxi, one of those beautiful cabs in London, those black cabs, and saying, Buckingham Palace. You do realize they, they would think you're off to a garden party within the palace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've talked about Buckingham Palace. A great opportunity for travelers just outside of London is Windsor Palace. Uh, Paul, is it worth the trouble to go out of London to see Windsor Palace? Definitely. I think any of the places outside London linked to the royals, are, they're all worth a visit. And which are those places? Uh, you've got Windsor, Sandringham. Balmoral. Balmoral, okay, which so is the summer retreat for the no, royal family. Now, Windsor is your classic palace experience. You've got the maze, you've got the big dollhouse, you've got all sorts of beautiful things to check out when you go there, and it, in a lot of ways it feels lived in. I was just up at Balmoral, and it is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you got to drive a long way. You do need to drive a long way there. And you pay a lot of money, and you park your car, and you walk a long way, and then you see this big house, and tourists can actually go into one room in the actual house. Yes. But yeah. it's a pretty impressive room. It is beautiful. As you said, it was Queen Victoria and Prince Albert who actually bought Balmoral personally. And it's very much the um, summer vacation That's right. for I the family. That's right. I remember the royals go up in the, uh, to the highlands. They do. And summer. this is where you'll see, often see the photographs with Prince Charles in his kilt. And they go to the, to the Highland Games as well, which yeah. are very close by. But they totally embrace, as Queen Victoria did and Ever Prince since Victoria, Albert. they've had sort of an affinity for Scottish traditional culture, it seems like. Definitely. And in fact, just outside Balmoral is where you've got Crathay Kirk, which is the local church. So if you ever wanted to try and see the royals and you happen to be up there during the summer... Go to the church because they go every Sunday. Put on your best kilt, show your knees and go and see the royals. Show your knees. It's very much a, <laughs> an outdoor holiday for the royals up there, isn't it? They go yes. shooting. Yeah. yeah. And hunting. you know, while the tourists pay a lot of money and drive a long way to get there and you only see one room in the palace itself, there's outbuildings that are very interesting and they're put together nicely as a museum for the family and so on. And it comes with a very good audio guide. And I thought it was a good experience to see Balmoral. And I didn't even have a chance to go to church with the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Not on this, this occasion. Not on this occasion. <laughs> Elizabeth Boardman from Bath and Paul Guest from Belfast are telling us about the role of the British royal family and what you can learn about them when you visit the UK on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's finish this discussion off with just a moment, a memory you've got, maybe from your childhood, about the royals and, and why, even in this modern day and age, you still are thankful that England has a royal family. Paul? The memory that sticks out in my mind is uh, is in 1977, the Silver Jubilee, Queen's Silver Jubilee, street parties, all the tables laid out, Union Jacks hanging, all the bunting out, treats for the kids and games, and that's probably my royal memory. What anniversary? Silver. The, how uh, many years is that? Um, 25. Uh, 25. 25. Silver Jubilee. And that was almost 50 years ago. <laughs> wow. That's a long reign. That is a how long old are you? reign. <laughs> oh, I was, I was coming at how old the queen is, not you. And Liz, what's a memory you've got about the royals? I think I'm very lucky. I, I live in an area where it's not uncommon to see the royals. Uh, Prince Charles and Camilla. Well, Prince Charles has a private house which is called um, Highgrove at a place called Tetbury, which is close by to Bath. 
And even now, uh, Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, they will actually turn on the Christmas lights for the town. Oh. And it's quite a coup because every town and, and city in the, in the UK try and get someone, a, a celebrity, to turn on their Christmas lights. But for us to get royals is really quite a nice coup. And in fact, recently I was walking with my dog along one of the canals fairly close by. And I was aware of a lady in front of me. And this public footpath that we've got many of, obviously, in the UK, actually borders a private house of Camilla's. And uh, we happened to get to a point together, and it was Camilla. And she looked at me, and she looked at my dog, and she just said, and I'm, I apologise for the impression, oh, someone looks like they've had a very good time. I think she was talking about the dog, because he'd actually been in the canal, he looked like a drowned rat. But it was, you can get those moments of up close and personal with the royal family. And we're never going to be able to just knock on the door and go in for a cup of tea, as we would all like to. But they do try and make themselves accessible. So for many of British people, actually having a moment close by to the royals is quite a special moment. Ooh, someone <laughs> looks like they've had a good time. It's my Camilla. That's not as a good impression. <laughs> Liz Borman, Paul Guest, thank you so much. I've learned a lot thank about you. your royal family. Thank you. Find out when the public gets to view the Royal Family's art collection. It's a program extra you can hear on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. Hear how Russian royals shipped European culture to Siberia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Siberia has a reputation as a vast, cold, often bleak terrain with an often tragic history just beneath the surface. But Sophie Roberts' mission to search for the grand pianos that were shipped to remote corners of Siberia centuries ago gave her a chance to see a more intimate side of the Russian interior and its far east. She describes her journey about searching for a fitting piano to take care of a promising musician in Mongolia in her book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Siberia is this vast land, what, 20% of the, the land on the whole planet. And uh, it's, it's sort of a, an area where you don't cross a border and it says you're in Siberia. It's just this vast eastern hinterland of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. It's got a nickname as the Prison Without a Roof, a place of exile and banishment. Talk just a minute before we get into pianos about Siberia as this eastern extension of both Tsarist Russia and uh, the Soviet Union. Yes, indeed. It's a very loose description. Um, Chekhov said it best when he was there in the 1890s, and he talked about it beginning somewhere in Ekaterinburg, which is a city in the Ural Mountains, and ending, this is a wonderful phrase, goodness knows where. I took that to be Kamchatka, right out into the Pacific. It's huge. It's vast. It was this great prison without a roof. 1801 to 1917, we're talking about a million subjects banished to Siberia under the Tsarist penal exile system. And then the gulag system from 1929 to 53, we're talking about 2.7 million forced laborers dying in the Soviet gulag. Unreliable numbers, unthinkable numbers. You, you can't put a face or a word to describe how unfathomable that really is. But when I started to look for 
pianos and I started to search for the human stories in those numbers, I discovered something else. What is music and what do piano tuners and what do great pianos have to do with this vast gulag zone of the Tsarist Russia and the Soviet Union? Well, it was very interesting because what happened was under Catherine the Great, it began with her and it picked up pace into the 19th century, is an incredible piano mania in European Russia. So in St. Petersburg and Moscow, they couldn't make pianos quick enough. When Franz Liszt comes to play in 1842 in St. Petersburg, it's described like it's a modern day rock concert. You know, people are grabbing at Liszt's hair, they're picking up the cherry pips that he's spitting from his mouth to wear them as amulets. So there's this fever for pianos. In one of the the 19th century critics talks about how in a block of 100 apartments, 93 would have pianos. The piano tuners couldn't satisfy demand fast enough. And what (laughs) also happened was these instruments started to move across those Urals into Siberia with governors, with exiles, with mavericks, with misfits, dragging them on sledges. We're talking about a time before the railway. Sophie, it's interesting that it's hard today. For for many people, a piano is just, what am I going to do with this big thing? Because, you know, we've got everything so electronic and at our fingertips and streaming. But back in the middle of the 1800s, there was no recorded music. People had a hunger for culture, and there wasn't a symphony or an orchestra within a five-day uh, horse ride. Explain the importance of the piano back then that we might have a hard time appreciating today. But I think to understand the context, you're in, first of all, an incredibly severe climate, a very lonely place. You're among people that haven't all chosen to be there, the the exiles that were coming in. You wanted to hold on to something from your past. You wanted to hold on to something that represented your, your history, your culture, your context. And the piano, that instrument, that piece of furniture, if you will, provided a, both a symbolic and a very real connection with what they'd left behind. So it became the repository of, of enormous uh, connection, of, of emotion, of story, of loves lost, passions remembered. It became a center to their lives. And the piano in Siberia had, a, to me anyway, in the stories that I discovered, it had a different resonance somehow because of the sheer remoteness of its locale. Were people more forgiving? or Were these pianos just like horrible pianos, so horribly out of tune? Or do you think in the day, a wealthy person, even in the depths of Siberia, would have the wherewithal to have a proper piano technician make the piano sound good so you could have, in the middle of this vast cultural wasteland, a great pianist playing great music? They're just like a beautiful shining light in the middle of the snowy tundra. Uh, You described that beautifully, and indeed um, that was and remains the case. The piano tuners were the keys to the kingdom for me, both in history and in the present day. And back in the 19th century, the stories of them traveling all the way from Kiev to the borders of Mongolia to tune the pianos of wealthy merchants, bit by bit, a homegrown industry started to evolve. There were piano-making factories in Siberia itself. 
And the other thing I think is important to mention is this is in the Tsarist period when there was people of wealth who could afford with their great fortunes through silver mines and the rest to have pianos. In the Soviet period, and this is what I found very interesting, the piano was much more accessible. It was an everyday instrument. It wasn't a kind of instrument of the bourgeoisie, of the concert hall and privilege as it is in the West, perhaps. It was available to, to many. So the levels of musical education, which you still feel in the Siberians that I was talking to, is very, very high. And the concert pianist, Denis Matsuev, said it to me right at the beginning. He says, don't underestimate Siberia. They're my most demanding audience. They, they know exactly what mm. they're listening to. And that high level of musical education, I was, you know, you talk about it often, Rick, that sort of your, your sort of ethnocentricity is, is completely skewed and you right. realize that you're approaching these things wrongly, perhaps. You know, Sophie, one of my favorite memories of Warsaw, which is a Slavic country also, was going to an elegant uh, salon, a little uh, social room in a fancy house, and hearing one pianist playing to a, a small gathering of people that loved classical music. And it was such a beautiful, intimate moment as they were playing Chopin right there in the homeland of Chopin. And I can just imagine the salons and the beautiful little concerts with people that craved classical music all across Siberia, especially in the 19th century. This is Travel with Rick Steves. If you ever needed a reason to explore the far reaches of Siberia, Sophie Roberts went there on a mission to find the historic pianos that were given new homes in the most remote corners of Russia. She describes what she encountered over two years of travels in her book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Photos and videos from her journeys are featured on the website lostpianosofsiberia.com. Sophie, when you think of two years of exploring Siberia for these pianos, what are a couple of pianos that, that really told a story to you? Uh, what, what were a couple of the examples of the amazing pianos with their own history that you found? Well, there was one in the city of Akademgorodok, which is the science city outside of Novosibirsk. And with help from um, locals, I tracked down the last piano belonging to a lady called Vera Lota Shevchenko, who was a French pianist. Le Figaro described her as an absolute shining light of her time. She married a Russian and she, for one reason or another, ended up in the gulag. She spent eight years in that gulag and she used to practice on a wooden keyboard carved into the side of her bunk. On the day she was released, she walked out in her prisoner's pea coat and she knocked on the door of a music school and asked if she could play a piano. And it was an incredible moment. People stood at the door listening to this magnificent squall of Chopin, Bach and the rest. And she'd held that music in her head for eight years. Mm. And these academics in the city of Akademgorodok, they found out about her story. They brought her in. She'd lost her husband in the gulag. He disappeared. And they brought her in and they, they helped her with a piano. And she had a grand piano in her apartment until the day she died. And I tracked... Mm that down with the help of some wonderful Russians. This story, this was the whole thing about the hunt. It unraveled into something else. I then met her last tuner. Her last tuner survived the siege of Leningrad. He survived it, he said, by his own description, through music. He would listen to music on an old a record player, effectively, that his mother gave him. And music gave him solace. Music gave him hope. Music made him think it would be all okay. And that, if you like, hits at the core of why I found the whole hunt relevant to me. 
it told me what music can do. I grew up appreciating this. My dad was a beloved piano tuner, and I would we wouldn't even be talking now had he not decided to import great pianos from Germany. And I know how people appreciated bringing him into their house to give them what, what he called the Steve's sound of music, you know. And uh, people would trade in a, a miserable old little upright piano for a grand piano built with fine craftsmanship from Germany. And to think of the relief and the joy that brought people just here in Seattle, when you think about that in the middle of Siberia, and you think about that a century ago, it's just inspiring. And your book shines a light on that. And something your book also does is use this story of this love of music and this hunger for culture to talk about the humanity of a place like Siberia. You write about how you could knock on a door and say, do you have a piano here? And all of a sudden, you'd have a circle of friends. Talk a little bit about how your book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, is sort of a a tool or, or an avenue to just explore the humanity of Siberia and on a broader sort of scale, how we're connected with people all over the world. Yes, it's an important question because I am a traveler. I'm, a, I'm an addicted traveler. And I didn't realize that Siberia was going to become so significant for me. But what happened as a Western traveler in Russia, I was approaching it full of stereotypes, full of assumptions, full of politics. But knocking on the doors in these remote places as a Western woman saying, have you got a piano? Everything fell away. It was peculiar. It was a bit odd. And the doors opened. And from that single question, I would spend two, three, four, five days with people that welcomed me in. So that allowed me to get into the, the place, into the culture, into the food, into the drink, into the stories and playing with their children. You know, it allowed me access into that kind of granular level of a place that sometimes is hard to reach as a traveler. So, yes, in many ways, looking for a piano is an excuse to understand a place. But I hope there's also another narrative that tells the history of, of this territory and its relationship with music. So there's a few things going on. I admit that. But for me, it was definitely a passport somehow to being trusted and trusting others. We're talking to Sophie Roberts, the author of The Lost Pianos of Siberia, from her home studio right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can watch a video from Sophie's adventure at ricksteves.com slash radio. Sophie, you wrote that it's been suggested that when you hear the hush of silver birch trees and winter snow in the big soft chords of Russian music, that's sort of what we're talking about, what we're searching for here. Is there a piece that brings back the best impressions of Siberia that you like to go to when you hear it? Yes, there is. A Mongolian piece written by a contemporary composer called Sharav, called Awaken Step. It was the piece I first heard my friend, for whom I was looking for a piano, a Mongolian, a young Mongolian pianist. It was the piece I first heard her play on a Yamaha that wasn't quite up to scratch. It was one of the pieces that night in a recital in a tent on, the, on a hillside in a, the middle of the Mongolian steppe that stayed with me, that and Bach, the Appassionata. There's so many, but when you hear the thundering horses on the steppe, that steppe transcends modern borders. It belongs to Mongolia, it belongs to Siberia. When you hear a piano just a piano, no singing voice, no orchestra, nothing else, there's a sort of clarity 
that belongs to that icy landscape somehow. I, it's a hard one to describe, but it every time it moved me, those two pieces of music. And Sophie, there's the very human story of the Mongolian musician that needs a great piano that you got to know and cared for. Can you just explain how that sort of is, is the is the plot of your book. Talk about the Mongolian musician and what happened. Of course. I've been going to Mongolia for many years. It's somewhere where my family and I spend time. We made friends with a family that live about eight hours outside the capital, Ulaanbaatar, and they live in a remote valley. And this young Mongolian pianist was there in the summer of 2015. She was teaching piano to some of the local kids, and she was playing on a Yamaha that had seen better days. You know, it's a very brutal climate, Mongolia. You know, they talk about how uh, in winter it gets so cold that the cows tails snap in too. So you can imagine what that does to a piano. Anyway, she was playing music. I was listening in a, a very small and intimate space in one of these Mongolian tents with felted sides, perfect acoustics. She was playing some bark. The music was going up with the smoke through the hole in the center up to a kind of starlit sky. I thought it was very moving. But my friend, who knows much more about music and sound than I, said, oh, goodness, no, it's not quite right. We must find her one of the lost pianos of Siberia. He's a German. Uh, he knows his history. And what he was talking about was this extraordinary moment in Russia's history when they brought in the great makers from the German-speaking states and the piano mania took off in Russia. So there was a kind of a historical line that I could start to take while also looking for an instrument that was worthy of my friend's talent. So that was where the quest began, interestingly, in Mongolia. But of course, look at a map. It's very, very close to the border with Siberia. That's right. Again, my dad was a piano tuner, and he loved pianos, and he appreciated the history of pianos. And I remember he had a book with all the serial numbers and all the piano makers. You could look at the serial number of a piano and you go, oh, that was a Steinway from the 1920s. Those were the good years. Did you encounter that sort of, you know, here's an almanac of serial numbers, and we can read into the story from the serial number of the piano uh, that was made by this or that company? Yes, yes. So often it was amazing that it was like a detective hunt. I mean, of course, um, Russia's 20th century history is very disturbed. There's a lot of lost provenance and all the rest of it. But those serial numbers were, were really very important. And, you know, Steinway, for instance, keep very, very close record of it. Others lost records during the war. But I will never forget meeting a piano tuner in Kamchatka who was in his late 70s, and every piano he had ever tuned, he produced his notepad. It was written with the serial number. It was incredible, just this history of commitment. And, you know, the piano tuners are, I've seen them walk onto a stage at, at Carnegie Hall and you, you, they never have a name. You never recognize their importance, but they're the, the kind of unsung hero to my mind. And they certainly are of my book. They are real heroes. They are working oh. away, protecting these instruments, um, holding on to their stories and making sure they don't all end up on a bonfire. And yes, it was important, those serial numbers. They were part of the treasure hunt, I guess. Sophie, I didn't realize this conversation with you would, would lead to such emotions for me, but my father, all of his life, he was the piano tuner behind the scenes, and he would love these pianos. He would sign his business card, uh, you know, tuned by Richard Steves on this date to A440, and he would put it there, and then the musicians would run it over the goal line, and they would just love it. To think about that amplified almost infinitely in that vast Siberian prison without a roof, 
and to think of the importance of culture and the resilience of the human spirit and what we can learn from traveling. I'm just, I'm so inspired. And I just think it must have been so exciting and gratifying for you to find this story and then to be able to write about it in your book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing what you've learned. Thank you, Ray. That's Sophie's Mongolian pianist friend, Udgaro, playing on the piano Sophie found for her in Siberia. Up next, Francis Mays reminds us where you can find La Dolce Vida in Italy. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine. J'habite dans le Languedoc et je voyage avec Rick Steves. This was French for hello, I'm Sabine. I live in the Languedoc in southern France and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine. J'habite dans le Languedoc, dans le sud de la France, et je voyage avec Rick Steves. In just about any city or town in Italy, you don't have to look far to experience the heart of the community. Ever since the Roman era, the action has been in the piazza. Author Francis Mays knows how the public squares and plazas in Italy can reveal the real soul of any town or neighborhood. The author of Under the Tuscan Sun takes us to some of Italy's most enchanting places to wander and take life easy in her book, See You in the Piazza. Francis joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we recorded prior to the COVID shutdowns to explore the sweetness of doing nothing the way they do in the piazzas of Italy. Francis, buongiorno. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You must know that. What is the phrase? Uh, il dolce far niente? Yeah, sweet to do nothing. It's sweet to do nothing, and it's really sweet to do nothing on a piazza. What is it about a piazza that's so fundamental to the uh, the reason so many of us travelers just love Italy? It's the heart of the town. It's where everyone comes together. You go there to shop, to do your business, to meet a friend for coffee, but you're also going to run into the plumber you haven't been able to reach or uh, the dentist you wanted to make an appointment with. It's it's one reason the Internet hasn't gotten so crazy in Italy as it has here because you don't need to be online. You're going to see everybody in the piazza that morning. And I think that you know, the big sense of community comes directly from that. It's, it's the living room of a town. It's like the town is a big palace and there the piazza is... The living room. It is the living room. It, and of course, it's um, the weather lends itself to piazza living. People love to be out in the streets. And, and in Italy, people like the action. I, I always think when I go to a hotel, I want it quiet. I'll go up a few uh, flights of stairs and I'll, I'll, want, I'll sacrifice the view to be on the backside where it's quiet at night. But Italian travelers, they ask for the noisy room on the front because they want to be <laughs> near the action. That's probably true. It, it, the old hoteliers tell me that. Italian, I always say, I want a quiet room in the back. And they go, oh, well, that's easy because all the Italian travelers want the noisy room in the front. So you've spent 30 years in Italy sitting on piazzas having your cappuccino. Uh, what What are some little um, Francis May's uh, tips on, on getting the most out of your piazza experience wherever you may be hanging out? I love the piazza life. And when I'm staying three days in a place, I always have found by the end my my favorite piazza, mm-hmm. my favorite cafe on the piazza. So um, I do spend a lot of time there. In fact, it 
inspired my novel, Women in Sunlight. Hmm. I go in town every morning to have coffee, and I often see women sitting around the piazza writing in a notebook or Hmm. sketching or coming up on their bikes. And I know those women are travelers. You know, they're on a quest. They're looking for something. And um, it was kind of imagining what they were looking for that led me to write that novel. Mm. I know who they are. Mm -hmm. So the piazza for me is a place to really observe people and to participate in kind of the comedy of life, the Mm. peculiar looking people, the gorgeous people, the whatever interesting thing that I spot usually goes down in my notebook. And I know a lot of people, um, a lot of writers feel that way, you know, at cafes in Paris or wherever. But Mm -hmm. there's just something so everyday about Piazza life that I like taking part in it. We we opened this discussion where you're just saying, you know, you don't need the Internet. Everybody's right there in the Piazza. It is so true. It's hard to imagine that if you grow up in America behind the wheel of a car all the time. But in Italy, that's where people just gravitate. And you've got the core of the city. Historically, you've got the church, you've got the city hall, you've got the hospital, you've got the bell tower. That's yeah, everything you need. And you've got all the time in the world. You love the sound of your particular bell tower. And it's drenched in sun. You've got a beautiful little restaurant. You know the restaurateur. You know the barista in the cafe. It's just really lends itself to the il dolce far niente, the, what is it, the sweetness of doing nothing. Yes, it does. It also keeps you in touch with a lot of people in a very direct way because you're going in the wine store, you're going in the Fruta e Vidura, you're going in the little grocery store, you're shopping at very different places in the course of the morning. Mm -hmm. We have a little outdoor market in our town once a week, Mm -hmm. and we also have a, a big market on another day. So all of that takes place around the piazza. It's where life is lived People go to the piazza every day, Hmm. and I think it's just such a healthy way to live because you don't get isolated. Yeah. There's not the hierarchy of age. It's a multi-generational celebration, uh, and if there's a university or college in the town, the students are hanging out having their spritz. It's just, uh, you you can join. A traveler is welcome to join. Frances Mays is affectionately known as the Bard of Tuscany. She introduced us to what it takes to start over in a fixer-upper Tuscan villa in her bestseller, Under the Tuscan Sun. She writes about the backroad towns of Italy that she and her husband have been exploring in her book, See You in the Piazza. And her coffee table photo book, Francis May's Always Italy, won a gold prize in the 2020 Society of American Travel Writers Awards. Frances also hosts a PBS special on Italy. She's written a travel memoir, coming-of-age tales about growing up in Georgia, plus novels and books of poetry. Her website is francismaysbooks.com. Miranda is calling in from Leavenworth in Kansas. Miranda, do you have a piazza in Leavenworth? Hi, Rick. Hi, Francis. Uh, no, there is certainly a large downtown area with uh, many old historic buildings uh, with shops and places to um, have coffee, but certainly none of the uh, wonderful, splendid things that you've uh, described so far um, in terms of piazzas in Italy. What's your thoughts about piazzas in Italy? Have you enjoyed them, or do you you feel the magic like Francis and I do? Certainly. um, uh, My experience in Cortona, especially, um, the way you described it is spot on. Um, Here in America, of course, you know, we have to get in and out of our car to, you know, go grocery shopping. And if you, certainly in Kansas, if you want a bottle of wine, take it with your meal, 
you have to go to a separate place because that's not sold in a grocery store. So um, in Cortona, I have an affinity for the piazzas in Cortona especially. And so I wanted to ask Frances, um, among all of the other hilltop towns that she's visited in the Tuscany and Umbria uh, regions, what would be her next favorite beyond just Cortona? I love the tiny town of Lucignano. It has an elliptical-shaped piazza. It's not a very lively town, but it's such a beauty. Hmm. And I think the Renaissance piazza in Pienza is stunning. Mm. It's backed by the big Duomo and the view of the valley behind that. It's a magical piazza. Of course, I I really love the piazzas in Florence um, everywhere, you know, has its own. In Tuscany, um, Luca has another one of those round. Luca has, Lu- yeah, you're right. Luca has an incredible piazza. One of my favorites is in Massima Maritima. Hmm. That's over on the edge of the Marema, and it's kind of a lopsided piazza, kind of somber but very dignified. Mm-hmm. San Sepulcro has wonderful piazza. They're everywhere. Somber is an interesting word because a lot of these stony villages they feel a little somber. And the piazza can be lifeless or full of life, depending on the time you go there. I think it's fun to think about the different personalities that piazzas have in the different times of day. Campo di Fiori in Rome is really good that way. Yes. I tried to analyze once why a piazza is lively and why one is not. Mm -hmm. And it seems the more kind of daily shops it has, the livelier it is. Mm. The more churches and banks it has, the less lively it is. But the Lucignano is really a sweet, small one. Over in Umbria, I love the piazza in uh, Montefalco. That's a great town and the home of the Sagrantino wine. Oh, I, I love that wine. Round piazza. Very lively and appealing. What's that town, Francis? Montefalco. Montefalco. All right. Yeah, the Sagrantino is kind of the... Everybody in Tuscany goes for the Brunello di Montalcino, but in Umbria, the Sagrantino is the, the favorite. You know, we're talking about one square can be lively and the next not so lively. In Rome, everybody loves Campo di Fiori. And then just a block away, what is it, uh, Piazza Farnese? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a, yes. there's a piazza with the French embassy facing it. And it's yes, just that's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, stately. Michelangelo designed the facade, but there's no people there. There's just a, some police guarding the French embassy, and there's a big yes. convent, and it's uh, kind of deadly. And then you step a block away into Campo di Fiori, and it's a... It looks like a movie set. Every different time of day has a different personality. It's got its fountains going. It's got the young lovers. It's got the patina of age and all of the uh, little cafes and restaurants that surround it. I, I just love that square. And it's completely different uh, in the morning with the market, uh, in the evening when it's romantic, and at midnight when it's sort of a place for all the crazy people to hang out. It's just an yes. amazing thing. <laughs> hey, um, Miranda, thanks for your call. Thank you. Our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. Our special guest right now is Frances Mays. It's an interview we recorded prior to the COVID pandemic. She's helping us to look at life the way it's meant to be lived in the many piazzas of Italy's small towns and city neighborhoods. Frances is the author of See You in the Piazza, which highlights the many easygoing attractions she's enjoyed while road tripping across Italy. Francis has also recently co-authored a National Geographic photo book called Francis Mays, Always Italy. And Brad's calling from Williamsburg in Virginia. Hey, Brad. 
Ciao, Rick. Ciao, Francesa. Share one of your Piazza memories, Brad. Well, I was very fortunate to be stationed in the U.S. Army in Vicenza, up in the Veneto, about 60 miles west of, uh, of Venice. And I discovered the little town of Morostica, hmm. which is, oh, I don't know, 60 miles or so northeast of uh, Vicenza. It's built on the side of a, of a hill, and it's an old walled city. I say city, it's really a, a large village. And uh, it has a very interesting history for about its, its piazza. The piazza is laid out like a giant chessboard. And uh, about 600 years ago, two young nobles fell in love with the daughter of, of the duque. And the duque was friends with both families. And so he said he really didn't want them to fight a duel. So uh, he proposed that they play a, a chess match. And then whoever won the chess match would win the, ha- the hand of his daughter. Hmm. So the villagers said that they wanted to watch, but there wasn't enough room. And so they laid out this piazza like a giant chessboard, and the villagers played the parts of different chess pieces. So the two young men are under a small tent, and they're playing the game. And with each move, then the uh, the local uh, troubadour would call out which move it was. Hmm. And so the whole village could participate and watch how the, how the game played out. Well, this became a, a very famous ballad. And now, every two years, on a September, every even-numbered year, for eight days, the villagers uh, go into medieval costume, and they'll have two recreations of this, and, it, and this troubadour will, will sing out the different moves hmm. of the game. And you have men in armor on, on horseback, and people walking around with falcons on their, on their arm, and it's really quite a, a wonderful spectacle. You have to get tickets about six months in advance because it tends to sell out, but it's really just a marvelous thing to to observe, and you really feel like you've gone back in time. So this is the piazza in the village of Marostica, M-A-R-O-S-T-I-C-A, near uh, Vicenza, which is famous for yes, with architects yes. because that's the home of the Palladian architecture and so on. Sounds good. Exactly so. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, yeah it's a... You're very welcome. Interesting town, my goodness. There's so much in Italy, and that's what Frances has discovered. And she spent, uh, what, how many, you spent about six months uh, researching your See You in the Piazza book, Frances? Uh, longer than that. I, it's all a blur by now. <laughs> a lot of villages and a lot of beautiful moments on a lot of beautiful piazzas. I think uh, bottom line is, wherever you are in Italy, make sure you take time to Become a temporary local. Just just melt into the scene socially and from a cuisine point of view and the local wine or whatever right on the main square in the piazza. And, uh, Francis, I know from your writing that after you venture around Italy, you, you love your travels, but it's always good to get back to your adopted hometown of Cortona. Uh, let's finish off this discussion about the magic of the piazza with uh, your feeling about a piazza in Cortona. Sit us down just for a little glass of wine on your favorite piazza in Cortono. What are we going to see? What are we going to feel? We have two main piazzas, and in the morning, uh, it depends on what time I get to my chair in the piazza because there are no umbrellas allowed in the Piazza della Repubblica. So you have to gauge when you're going by where the sun is going to fall behind the buildings because you don't want to sit in the direct sun. Oh, okay. So I, I find my place at a certain time my friends stop by you meet maybe 30 people that you talk to in the course of having a couple of cappuccinos and then I just wander around town doing my shopping it's very casual and it's just a way of life that I have come to think 
is one of the healthiest ways to live and happiest ways to live. I've enjoyed the piazzas also at night. Nobody goes to bed early, especially in the summer Mm. in Cortona. 11 o'clock at night, all the cafes are still full. The children are playing soccer. And the kids are playing soccer. I I remember when our kids were little. We would just enjoy that extra glass of wine on the the piazza, and the kids would run around at at nearly midnight kicking the soccer ball. And and you do feel, you know, you meet 30 people over a couple of cups of coffee, and it's not because you're a famous travel writer. It's because you're part of the community. Yes, and everybody's getting gelato and... (laughs) The stars are shining over the town, and you know you live there. It's mm. just very deep and satisfying. Under the Tuscan moon. Under the Tuscan moon. Of course, the great piazza is San Marco in Venice, oh. and it has some magic that no number of tourists can dampen. That's true. To sit out and listening to that schmaltzy music, having an after-dinner drink, and just loving that piazza is, uh, you know, it makes you realize looking at the... Uh, basilica there that venice was itself before the rest of italy became itself venice has that kind of eastern influence that always makes you feel you're in an exotic place so that's kind of the premier piazza experience but i love the small town one even more you know that's we've been talking about this sort of uniformity of the beautiful piazza experience but as you just mentioned every city every town has a piazza that has its own distinct character, whether it's a little village or whether it's a grand square like in Venice. Francis, it's always so good to talk to you. Thanks for writing this uh, latest book, and um, maybe we'll see you in the piazza. That would be wonderful, Rick. Thank you. Ciao. Grazie. Ciao. You don't have to write a best-selling memoir or guidebook about Italy to share an impression from your travels with us. Send us an original haiku poem about your travels, and we might even read it on the air one day. There's a link at ricksteves.com radio. Here's a few haiku snapshots that our listeners have sent us. Neil Ruddy of Carlisle, Iowa, sends us these haiku impressions from his trip to Sarasota, Florida, home of the Ringling Museum, and the one-time location of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Clown College. Rhinestones and feathers hid the grind and the pain of backstage circus life. An elephant's hide is two inches thick, yet they can feel flies landing. Florida wind chill. Real temp 64. Feels like 63 with wind. There's nothing so much fun as messing about in water taxis. What is more scary? Clowns, teachers, cat ladies, or all of them at once? Parasailing off Lido Key, Sarasota Bay. Geezers can fly. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappen with Casmore Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Amara Kitnikone uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the WUNC studios in Durham, North Carolina, for their help this week. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick, 
Thanks to Gretchen Strout for reading our listener travel haiku. You can find out about our guests and read Rick's travel blog on our website, ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.